Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With us in London is David Folkerts Landau of Deutsche Bank, not only uh, leading the research team at Deutsche Bank, but with his important research over the decades on flows of capital. David, you have been clear and straightforward on negative interest rates. We just heard Christine Lagarde speak of the lower bound that we're at. Give us an update on what negative interest rates are doing to continental Europe. Well, uh, first, no, Lagarde has been dealt uh, a bad hand in the sense that she's stuck with the situation she inherited, <clears throat> and the question is how to get out of it. I believe there is a strong consensus at the political level developing that negative interest rates are to, to quite a large extent responsible for uh, discontent within the broader population for a feeling that uh, we're no longer, we meaning central banks, and, and uh, are no longer in control of, of what's going on of monetary policy. Anybody looking saying that I put money in my savings account and I lose 50 bips says to himself something is fundamentally wrong here. And uh, when, I, when I talk to my German relatives and my mother says, what, what are you guys doing? You can't even get this right. How can we trust you? So I think this does percolate down to that level and then back up to the political and creating pressure. Are so you... uh, I believe that this negative interest rates from here on out uh, are not the policy tool of choice. The question is how to get out of it now. You can't all of a sudden have a, have a flip a switch and go back to zero. But uh, uh, our strong forecast and our sort of what we hear from various angles and various segments is that uh, the, the search is for a way out rather than thinking of it as a positive tool. Same, same <coughs> way when you look at the, the, the Fed's review of its uh, uh, monetary policy tools and instruments that have been going on now for more than a year. Again, there is a, there's a very strong dislike for negative interest rates because of the secondary impacts on the financial sector, on the general feeling in the population that something is wrong. So, If we have today on the Bloomberg an official of Ms. Merkel's party associating the far right in Germany with Nazis, this is loaded language, Dr. Folkerts Landau. Can you equate this economic experiment, even if well-intentioned, with the tepid GDP and economic growth of Europe over to, as you just said, people have lost their bargain with institutions, is it personified by negative interest rates? Have the institutions broken the relationship with the people? Well, it, it's, tempting to, it's tempting to say yes, but that wouldn't be quite right. I mean, there are many other factors that are involved here. There is a general breakdown of the centre-right and the centre-left dominance of European politics. You see this in Spain with Fox, you see this in, Ital in Italy with the League, <clears throat> and you see this in Germany with the AFD. And I think, I think that, there, uh, that we have a real problem in the sense that we have, an e we have economies that are performing reasonably well, nowhere near large unemployment numbers, in fact, almost full employment. Yet there is this discontent that pushes people away from the center into the fringes. And I think this is, a, this is probably the most serious political problem of our generation. There's no question that it does inf infect policy, both macro and uh, both monetary and fiscal, and, and as it should indeed. David, this is too important to ignore. So Angela Merkel also yeah. called her party's decision to align with this far-right party unforgivable. <clears throat> and she, quote, said it is a bad day for democracy. Now, she's talking during a visit to South Africa. Can this be reversed? 
it, it, it's difficult to reverse it by fiat, but it can be reversed by lots of pressure, obviously. I think to put this in perspective, you have to recall, this is the first time since the Weimar Republic that a far-right, a radical far-right party uh, uh, helped uh, forming a government. They're not in the government, they just helped elect the government, helped elect the, the, the state premier. Uh, now, that means they're going to have not much control over it, but a little bit of control. But, but it's very symbolic, particularly in Germany. And I think it's, it's probably underestimated in the international press as to how important this is for the German psyche. So it's definitely an earthquake political event inside Germany, okay. one that has to be taken seriously. But David, will it change policies, right? So you look at this Rangler Merkel, do, do, you know, without going into whether this changes the, the head of the CDU, which it could, does it change how you speak to your citizens and economic policies in place? There's no doubt that it will. There's no doubt that it will lead to a soul-searching of why haven't we brought the rest of the country with us uh, in, in, into, the, into this economic boom that it almost is. And, and why do we have this discontent? And this will have an impact on fiscal policy within Germany. No question there will be more inclination to spend on infrastructure and, and it also may on the European side, though there it's a little more difficult to implement that. But so from that point of view, and the same with negative interest rates, that's why I think negative interest rates are a thing of the past. We try to get out of it. Fiscal policy will be expansionary and there, uh, this is going to impact policy, yes. But, but, but more than that, um, it, it is, what it has done is it has legitimized uh, the, the, the role of a really far-right party in, in German politics, and, uh, and, and it's going to have international repercussions in terms of reputation and so So I think the quicker we can reverse this, the better. But you can't just, you know, Merkel does not have the administrative right. power to reverse it, not, not as AKK. This is something that has to get done by lots of pressure, and, and, uh, and I presume uh, uh, that the three parties coordinated this before, and they thought about all the consequences, the FTP and the CDU, and uh, that it's not going to be so easy to reverse. Uh, I want to again bring this up to date. Our Patrick Donahue and Arne Delfs reporting Chancellor Merkel's party lines up with German far right in shock vote. And it's been extraordinary to see the language. David, what is the to-do list for institutions? You are one of the advantaged of the elite of Germany. What is the institutional mandate to turn Germany towards a more moderate path? Well, I think it's important that there uh, you know, that, that the institutions, that the firms stick to their primary business, and in our case that is intermediating between savers and investors. No, we're not a political actor, but we have strong views about this. There's no doubt that uh, you know, this is bad for everybody uh, concerned. And, and you know, we play, we're prepared. You know, there, are, there are political issues that, that where we can actually do something, this is less so, but we can do a lot about, uh, for instance, about uh, sustainability, uh, and, and we have done that. Um, but on this issue, all we can do is add our voices to those that are critical, and we are, and our CEO has done that already. So I think you know, we, we speak out strongly no. and we feel strongly about this. Extraordinary comments. Uh, David Fulkerts Landau, he is with uh, Deutsche Bank. Bring in Jeff Curry, shall we? Goldman Sachs Global Head of Commodities Research. Stun us all, Jeff. What is the call? Well, when we look at the current coronavirus and, um, pandemic, we'd say the biggest 
impact of it is coming from the quarantine. You know, you're shutting down factories, shutting down schools, shutting down transportation to and fro China. Obviously, oil sits at the center of this because it's both the activity inside China as well as the travel um, in and out of China. Um, the question is, how long will this go? I think most people are budgeting sometime to at least early March. Um, after that, I would tend to think you get a rebound, and I think you'll get stimulus that's focused on the consumer to boost consumer confidence. Um, so you get much more of a V-shaped check-type um, recovery coming out of it. Um, and so the question is, what, what does this do to activity in the second half of the year versus today? We think all the weakness is up in the near term. With oil, sometimes it's 2x the economic weakness because you're shutting down all that those interconnectivities. Um, but I, when you look, let's say, out four months, five months out, we'd expect to rebound right back up to the same levels that we were at before and, re, you know, and actually be even be on a faster growth path. So one of the biggest demand shocks since the financial crisis, arguably, but with a key caveat that you think this is transitory, you think we get a V-shaped recovery. What are the risks around that view? What are the risks around that view that you can identify, that you can say, if that materializes, if X happens, we've gone through an inflection point and I'm going to change my mind? I, I think there's two. One is that we've disrupted supply chains around the world. It becomes much more difficult to restart. We don't know that yet, and that we've seen that historically. Um, the, the, the second issue is the contagion. Now, the reason why it's having such a profound economic impact today is they're trying to contain the contagion by doing a, a largest quarantine I've ever seen in my lifetime, um, which is why you're having the sharp drop today. But I, I would say you know, the bigger issue is we don't know the parameters of the contagion. A lot of people are saying that this is the containment largely having to do with the slowdown in the economy. I was reading about the Spanish flu of 1918. Uh, the death rate was very similar to the coronavirus. It was a 1% to 2% type of fatality rate. But it spread so widely that 50 million people died. What's your concern that perhaps people are underballing the potential impact of the coronavirus saying it's going to be fine, even if it's not contained, as basically everyone says uh, it will be? And it, it escalates into something that, well, that let's go back to why they call it the Spanish flu. Spain was the only one that had a media that reported on it. Um, it you know, there it was an issue of transparency and they weren't on top of it. This is the exact opposite. Um, they are so much on top of that. The extent of the quarantine really demonstrates that the ability to ma maintain the contagion is unprecedented. I mean, you're paying an economic cost for it today. Um, but the, but the contagion um, is more contained than I think we've seen any of the other events. So given that, are you surprised that we're not seeing more of a boom to oil prices today, given the fact that it's risk on? Because what where this oil is going is it's going into storage in China um, or it's being backed up onto the global market. Commodities are spot assets. They have to price today. Financial markets are anticipatory assets. They price tomorrow. So oil has to pay the price for the day. All the commodities have to pay the price today. Um, the financial markets can price the much more positive story that we see, let's say, in July or August. So arguably, we're seeing that, Jeff. So let's talk about the stimulus response, shall we, at the moment. You think we're going to see some real stimulus in the back half. I just wonder what they'll do, because at the moment, it's very, very short-term stuff. Liquidity to banks, cutting rates on that liquidity to banks, all of that good stuff. When do we start to see the longer-term measures? I, I think you got to know, we, we don't even know when this ends, when they can actually start doing it. Um, I think at this point right now, their ability, they're trying to maintain and deal with the 
virus as opposed to focusing on the economic growth. So it, we're just watching for some evidence of the restart. We have a bunch of different high-frequency variables we're focused on, um, everything from real estate transactions, power generation. Once we see that right. begin to rebound, I think that's when people are going to focus on these other issues. So what does Riyadh do? I mean, if the oil demand craters in China and it's oil one price, Brent crude, what do, how does OPEC and how does Saudi Arabia react to what you're predicting? Well, the question is how much of this is backed up onto the global market? Exactly. Um, and, you know, it, it, we, we would estimate by looking at crude runs in China, it's probably somewhere around a million barrels per day as opposed to the full demand hit. So when you think about the, the numbers that the JTC, the Joint Technical Committee of the OPEC, recommended last night, they were somewhere around 600,000 barrels a day, which is not too far off the mark, and that probably manages the external surplus for a few months. For a few months. And the, the great call here of your 4.0% GDP call is it's going to be a recovery. Can you model that recovery now to a few months, or is it just you just don't know? Don't know. I think that's you know that's why I'm surprised that the equity market is so positive because you do have. What's well, Costin's fault? Blame it on. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> yep, David. You know, but but the equity markets. Why would you suggest as a commodities guy why Costin's world has a bid to it? Because they're looking at a SARS-like recovery here two, three months out. I mean, that's right. the end of the discussion. Yeah, because I think that the view is, hey, you got a lot of problems you're dealing with, but the quarantine is so large um, that it's most likely going to be effective. Right. And you put a, it's a very low probability tail risk of something right. bad happening. Explain yeah. to our audience this phrase, force majeure. We've got CNUC, the LNG crew, saying, no, nope. we don't think so. I mean, yep. every other company today, frankly, outside of China as well, in Singapore, is getting out the Latin book on force majeure. Yep. Is that Latin, John, or French? I can't remember. You're doing okay, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> Are we, is it force majeure March? Yeah, it's going to be not only in commodities and particularly oil. We see it quite a bit. You're going to see it across all types of goods. And it goes both directions. Not only stuff going into China, but stuff coming out of China, particularly some of the key commodities that they produce, like steel and aluminum. Jeff Curry's on the show, so we have to wrap things up by getting the gold call. What's the gold call now? What we're, is it? What's the dynamic around that metal that you're thinking about? By, by the way, the about? one thing I did not anticipate was the ding to jewelry demand in China being significant. It, it, it's significant at the margin. Gold's trading, um, you know, sixteen seventy and change right now, or fifteen seventy and change right now. Um, our, our target is sixteen hundred. Um, we were pretty close to it a few weeks ago, but this demand hit has um, taken some of the tinge out of it. We're still positive. We view gold much more as a strategic allocation trade as opposed to a directional trade. Um, you know, so in, if I were to highlight the key issues, geopolitical risk, de-dollarization, I think is a big one. Central bank buying of gold last year was the highest since the Nixon era, representing 22% of global supplies. Um, so the net of that, we see some modest upside near term. Your clients, the guys that you speak to on a daily basis, are they becoming more sympathetic to your view? Are they boosting their allocation to gold in their portfolios? Is that something you've witnessed over the last 12 months? Um, in Europe, they can't get enough of it. But remember, really? they have negative bond yields. Um, in the U.S., it's a, put, it's a hard call because, you know, the bond yields are still positive here. Um, so it really depends on where you are in the world. Can central bank policy affect your world? Um, absolutely. Um, you, know, it, you get it does, a rate cut. Hatsia says one rate cut, two rate cuts, whatever he's saying. Does that help commodities find a bid? Um, not as much as stimulus coming out of China, um, but it is, it is a positive no. development. This has been superb. Jeff Curry, thank you so much for Goldman Sachs with a really important call there in China GDP uh, before the market clears. 
Right now, Henrietta Trez joins us. She's Director of Economic Research, of course, uh, with VEDA Partners. Henrietta, we need to talk about the fractured polarization in uh, Washington, but I've got to ask you uh, what you thought of the Romney moment yesterday. I mean, how did that fit into the floor, the Senate, the House that you know? Uh, well, it was it was certainly very unwelcome news for Republican leadership. Um, we had been with staff there throughout the day in real time, just understanding that um, they were extremely displeased with Senator Romney's yeah. decision to get so vocal. Um, the immediate fear is for him to see some substantial backlash and obviously. OK, but, but I don't mean to interrupt, but I think it's so important. Like what backlash? You can't get on the squash court. I mean, what actually happens to the <laughs> senator from Utah. Um, I don't know that the senator from Utah is the one that's most at risk, but any of the vested interests who have supported him are now going to get nothing of their agenda accomplished. Like Chuck right? Schumer. <laughs> like Chuck Schumer, sure, or any of the um, trade associations who have donated to him or who are looking to him to advance any of their legislation. Um, one of the issues that I'm not particularly familiar with, but something to do with college sports and his legislation and impetus yeah. there. Um, something came up there, um, just this, uh, well, the manifest uh, options for them to sort of squeeze him are the focus now. I mean, you're a grizzled pro on this, so just one more question on the politics of it before John gets to policy. But is he a Democrat in Utah now? I mean, I mean I, I'm fascinated by what happens in his state right now. I mean, it's like, well, what, four Democrats in Salt Lake? Yeah, exactly. And um, it was interesting to see the Utah Republican Party and the junior senator from Utah, Mike Lee, respond. What they essentially, say? Sorry, the senior senator, um, you know, we don't agree with uh, anything that the detractors had to say, really teaming up against him. So that internal politics of Mitt Romney in the state, I think, will be interesting to watch. They were certainly very unhappy. Henrietta, the media publications you'd expect to play this up are playing this up, but let's be honest, there'll be a footnote in the history books. We'll move on to the election very, very quickly in November. So let's focus on that. If you want to win elections, you're probably going to need a few people from the other side of the aisle to cross over. And the made-for-Twitter moments that might entertain the base that we've seen from the Democrats over the last week or so, it's just turning off everyone else. And there is a conclusion that many people have come to on both sides of the aisle over the last couple of days that the president has had a very good week. How does he capitalise on that, Henrietta? Yeah, absolutely. I think probably the most important data point was the underwhelming turnout in Iowa um, earlier. That is a story that doesn't get enough attention. But if Democrats are going to win in 2020, they have to depend on a massive voter turnout. And that's something that just didn't show up in Iowa. So when you think about the president's good week, potentially, you know, as described to us by Republican leadership, maybe his best week ever, um, that's probably the number one driving factor. So Democrats have to um, fix what's gone on in the last week um, immediately, get to New Hampshire, figure out if Buttigieg is going to get a bounce from this, figure out if the establishment's going to firm up behind Biden. Um, they have a lot of decisions to make. The conversations I heard from investors on the road were regularly intoning um, that Mike Bloomberg has a chance to really drive and pull away here um, to, to take on the nomination. And the party is pretty unprepared for that, in my opinion. Of course, um, Mike Bloomberg, the founder majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News. And Henrietta, for the market, it comes down to something quite simple. Do we get a progressive candidate or a moderate out of the Democrat side? Uh, what are you looking for in New Hampshire? What's the read through from Iowa to New Hampshire next week? 
The most important thing to me is that Bernie Sanders is underperforming in New Hampshire versus 2016. He got 60% of the vote there in 2016. He's getting 24% or so now. I think that's the story. So the potential for a more moderate candidate continues to be my most likely outcome. Um, I doubt that it would be Klobuchar, so I think the contest is between Biden and uh, Pete Buttigieg at this point. And Buttigieg has some momentum, but very little minority support. So it's always been my view that other candidates must win both Iowa and New Hampshire. Biden doesn't need to win either. So um, his firewall in South Carolina and Super Tuesday make me um, comfortable with that. And there's a question of what the narrative will be among the Democrats in terms of how to counter the strong economy and the trade achievements that President Trump has made. I'm wondering what you think of particularly the trade developments as China does say that they will have tariffs and some $75 billion of imports from the U.S. later this month, as we do seem to get progress uh, across the board. What's the sort of narrative that he can use versus the counter narrative? Well, the counter narrative is one that we're hearing from Democrats and increasingly from Senate Republicans behind the scenes, which is that the tariff rate reduction China announced overnight is potentially being driven by a increased sense of reality that China's going to miss its purchase commitments. That's the most important thing. Uh, Democrats would obviously seize on that immediately. It's got ramifications for Senate races as well as the administration. Um, the key states of Iowa and North Carolina are both major pork producers. They're looking for massive shipment uh, commitments from China in that space. And they, importantly, both have Republican senators at risk up for re-election in 2020. Uh, Joni Ernst in Iowa and... Um, uh, Tom Tillis in North Carolina. So for Democrats right now, what they are seizing on is this very real anxiety from farm state Republican senators and congressmen that China's going to miss its purchase commitments and that this drop in tariffs was driven by that. Um, and the potential for coronavirus, or the yeah. African swine fever or whatever to impact their ability to hold true to their purchase commitments, which um, behind the scenes, they'll tell you they think President Trump inflated beyond what China was able to commit to in the first place. Well, Henrietta, so let's talk about these commitments, because there is a clause in the phase one deal that in the event of natural disaster or unforeseeable events, you can consult either side can get together and try and work something out. As far as you can see, have we seen that from China as yet? Because I haven't seen any official statement from either side that suggests they have made that approach. And do you expect it to happen in the coming week? No, we haven't seen that approach. Um, I think that the administration is starting to telegraph that the coronavirus is a pretty severe issue. And so that might smooth the way for eventually having those conversations. They're at least laying the groundwork to um, make that an option that's available to folks. Um, if, if we eventually get there, China has not, to my knowledge, done that yet. There is obviously some conflicting reporting going yeah. on around there. Um, but I think that the given that the option is escalating tariffs further from here, which is extraordinarily right. unwise going into an election eight months away, um, my expectation is that if they do miss purchase commitments, right. There will be a very real willingness to blame it on coronavirus or whatever and um, engage in further talks. Yeah. Henry, one final question after this history made yesterday and really over the last few weeks in Washington. What happens today in Capitol Hill? Do people just like come in and get their coffee and sit in their offices numb or like what's the to do list on Capitol Hill today? There is no to-do list. Um, I imagine everybody will go retreat to their corners and yeah, come yeah, back and yeah. talk about appropriations in a few yeah. weeks. There's no to-do list. Henrietta, thank you so much. Henrietta Tracy. Thank you, Henrietta. Just brilliant. That was just brilliant.
Mike Wilson is with Morgan Stanley. He has not said go to cash, but he has decidedly been cautious on this great bull market. He joins us now. Mike, I want to go to one of your individual stock selections, but far more than that, I want to go to one single sentence in your recent note, which is up, 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 but beneath the data, there's been some real damage to the markets. What do you mean by that? Well, what we've been saying for quite a while is that, you know, it's a, definitely a bull market. Uh, you know, last year, I think uh, back in October, uh, when it became clear that the central banks were going to go to the next level and uh, inject uh, money into their balance sheet, uh, you call it Kiwi, now Kiwi, whatever it is, the liquidity bull market took over again. And, and so we're on board with that. And we raised our price targets last fall, and we've talked about a 3500 price target for the first half of this year. But the fundamentals have really not supported that move. It doesn't mean that it's you know that, that, it, that we're going to roll over into recession. In fact, our economists are quite constructive on the global backdrop more than the U.S. But the global backdrop looks quite good. We have this virus which is threatening that they think it will end up being fine and we'll end up weathering it. Like I think most people are saying at this point. And so what we have is we have a liquidity-driven bull market. And underneath the surface, Tom. Uh, the market has traded very defensively. What do I mean by that? Large caps have uh, handily beaten small. Uh, High-quality stocks have continued to beat uh, low-quality stocks. And uh, the one area we've been focused on is defensively-oriented stocks have really uh, beaten cyclical stocks. So just to give you uh, – so our portfolio, our you know uh, model portfolio that we manage is uh, has basically outperformed the S&P by 1,700 basis points over the last, you know, 18 months, and it's very defensive. I mean, it's, it's a very boring yeah. of stocks, but that's worked well. Yeah. And so I think that continues. But, but we're getting closer to a point where that may start to revert, and we should, we should try to talk about that too. So, Mike, you know, the, when we think about the 29% move up in the S&P last year, there's little to no earnings growth accompanying that. It was mostly multiple expansion. Have you seen anything in the current earnings cycle to give you confidence that – 2020 can be a high single digit, if not a 10% type of earnings year? We're not quite there yet, but what we are seeing is, is definitely a troughing. Okay, so the earnings recession that we called for, I think, is probably completed uh, for now. Uh, we're stabilizing. We're not seeing a big inflection point in earnings growth, but you know, the stabilization is enough to get people uh, excited, and that's why multiples went up. You, know, you combine that with extraordinary monetary accommodation and that's what you had and that's that's what markets typically do all we've said is that you know that 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 extension that we've seen is far surpassed the fundamental uptick and so now the fundamentals need to catch up and that and that can happen right and and so i think the the coronavirus is obviously you know risk um the markets i'll tell you right now you know that's a real risk and the markets basically shrugged it off so that tells me the technical picture of the market is very strong okay at the index level it's still buying quality and what that means is that the liquidity-driven bull market is intact. What is your partition of buying U.S. versus buying international? If you're saying your global economics is a more constructive international, we saw that Q4 pop in international equities. Do you sustain that? Well, we ha- it hasn't been the case. So obviously this year, uh, the U.S. markets have retaken the lead because yeah. the markets have gotten scared. But we do think in the intermediate term, so for our longer-term portfolios, we are positioned for a global growth rebound. And we, we would argue strongly that there is going to be a rotation back towards the kind of more cyclically geared areas. And once we get through this most recent concern around the virus, that doesn't mean, by the way, that U.S. stocks can't work. It just means that, you know, that the, the really fatter, the fatter pitch is in, in, in those markets outside the U.S. and in the areas that have been beaten up the most. 
and we're in the process now of probably making the final low so we can have that next wave of global reflation. So, Mike, taking a look at your research, which we love to read, I see you uh, added J&J as a name that you think the uh, Morgan Stanley clients should be looking at. What's the story behind J&J? Yeah, it's really simple. I mean, this is a this is a classic, you know, <laughs> defensively oriented growth name. I mean, it doesn't grow fast, but it, it grows, you know, five, six, seven percent uh, top line, and it, it's been punished because of the litigation concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, that are out there. And our analyst thinks that those concerns are overpriced. It's trades in the sixth percentile on a relative valuation basis. There's obviously been concern around the healthcare industry because of the uh, far left uh, you know, wing candidates in the Democratic Party that were in the lead. That looks to be fading now to some degree. And so this is just an opportunity for evaluation catch up. And, you know, we think high quality uh, defensive growth should continue to work. And this is a good this is a good this is a good place to put money right now. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for that. We appreciate your thoughts as always. Mike Wilson, he is Morgan Stanley, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist and Chief Investment Officer. We have the perfect guest this morning to frame the emotion of yesterday afternoon as the senator from Utah spoke to his Congress to his state, indeed to his family. Lonnie Chen is at the Hoover Institution that barely describes his path as the child of Taiwanese immigrants to a sterling academics at Harvard University and on to being the, and everybody says without any hesitation, the advisor to the governor of Massachusetts, the senator from Utah. Lonnie Chen, have you spoken to Senator Romney in the recent hours? Uh, I have not. No, I, you know, it, it was obviously a very emotional uh, moment for him yesterday. And, and you know, I think uh, we all understand or those of us who know him understand that uh, he made that decision uh, with some gravity and not lightly. And so, uh, you know, b- best to let that decision sit uh, with him and his family. You've been in the vortex of the separating of the Republican Party. How distant are supporters of the senator of Utah their Republican Party from the new Republican Party of President Trump? It's a great question. Uh, I I think this is going to be the question at the heart of conservative politics for many years to come, which is, you know, you have in a lot of ways a separation on uh, a number of different key issues over the years. Now, I think increasingly that Trump coalition and the Republican Party has matched up. And what you've seen in this most recent impeachment vote is the degree to which the president and his supporters have managed to um, essentially take over the entirety of the Republican Party and the Republican apparatus. And, and, and so I, I think, you know, the issue is going to be in the years to come, how much of this is lasting beyond the president, how much of the president's particular policy proposals, for example, that may not have matched up very well with, with uh, Republicans in the past. How much of that continues to be the, the positioning of the party going forward? I don't know that anybody knows the answer to that, but, but I, I do think that a lot of that won't get resolved until the president leaves office, whether it's uh, this coming January or four years from that. Lonnie, are you surprised at all that perhaps other senators who maybe privately voiced uh, concerns about President Trump and maybe specifically about the impeachment did not join uh, Senator Romney? No, I'm not surprised. I, I think, you know, everyone was going to arrive at the decision they were going to arrive at based on, on, this, on the facts they were looking at and, and the, you know, important factors they were considering. 
Um, but there are, you know, as as the Senator Romney said yesterday, there will be repercussions for him in terms of having to get blowback from Republicans around the country for the decision that he made. And, you know, I, I, I think it was a very difficult decision. And so I, it doesn't surprise me that others didn't walk the same path, even if they may have privately felt, look, the president's behavior um, w- was not something they agreed with. So I, w- what I think is that everybody had to reach the own decision they reached. And at the end of the day, everyone's got to consider the different factors that, uh, that, that matter to them. And for Senator Romney, those factors <clears throat> led to the decision that he made. Um, Lonnie, do you think it's accurate or fair for the Democrats to claim a little bit of a victory here saying, you know, this was not a partisan witch hunt, that in fact it was bipartisan. We had, even if it was just one Republican, but it was in fact a Republican crossing the aisle. I I, I don't see how they can claim victory because, look, the president's approval rating is as high as it's ever been. Uh, And it's not clear that the American people really felt that the exercise that they went through was wholly productive. I suppose the ultimate verdict will be rendered by the voters in November. uh, And and so we'll see. But I I have a very difficult time seeing how they can claim victory on anything. Uh, Lonnie Chen with us, folks, with the Hoover Institution, of course, his support of economic analysis and policy for uh, then-presidential candidate Mitt Romney a number of years ago. We're thrilled he could join us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.